Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Thursday, December 16th, 2021. And today will be better than yesterday. Producing from his home in the foothills of Connecticut is the Rev, Taylor Schwink. The Lord is slashing prices and all sin must go. Just Lombuster only and during the summer, we had Mr. Malibu on the podcast. And now we're joined by an ESPN newcomer, Sarah Abbott. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Okay, so you have something in common with Mr. Malibu is that you're in California right now. We started taping at 9 Eastern, which means that you're up at 6 Eastern, or excuse me, 6 p.m. Uh, or 6 a.m. Pacific time. You're crazy getting up this early. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm kind of an early riser, though, just naturally. And I have a big cup of coffee next to me. So we're good to go. All right. Now, uh, as you join, first off, tell me what you're going to be doing at ESPN. So I am a digital audio associate producer. Nice. And what type of stuff will you be doing? So I'll be doing some podcasts and then we'll be working on promoting things on social media. And I'm really excited to get started. Well, uh, and you've joined us the last couple of days. We've been doing tapings. We always do this with anybody who joins the podcast. Tell me who your favorite team was growing up and who your favorite player was. So my favorite team growing up is the Dodgers. My dad is a huge Dodgers fan and my dad is my best friend. So whatever he says goes. So that is a big one for me. Um, My favorite player is probably, I love Alex Gordon because I'm a Nebraska girl. That's where my whole family is from. And so that Nebraska bloodline runs deep. So when he hit that home run in the 2015 World Series, a game winning home run, what do you remember about that moment? I really remember my grandma going crazy. My grandma is huge Alex Gordon Royals fan, anybody from Nebraska fan, really. And so I remember her being so excited and it was just such a cool moment to experience with her. Oh, I bet that that's neat that you got to to be with her for that. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a good day to be on board because today we're going to be talking with former Expos general manager Kevin Malone about the craziness we can expect once the labor stoppage ends, what conversations are probably taking place right now, i.e. tampering, despite the rules against any contact, and why the 94 Expos are the greatest team that history will forget. We'll also talk with David Schoenfield about the biggest roster holes among contenders and Paul Ambikides will discuss Hall of Famers who are still playing. First Pitch is part of ESPN Nation, brought to you by Dr. Pepper. College football is back, and so are the fans. Return to Fansville by Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. With a lockdown going on, there's not a lot of news happening, but the Mets are nearing the end of their managerial search. Buck Showalter, Joe Espada, Matt Crotaro are all finalists in their search. Maybe we'll get a decision sometime over the weekend. The other day, Major League Baseball gave formal approval to that agreement between Justin Verlander and the Astros on a two-year, $50 million deal. That deal was agreed to before the December 1st deadline, and it got formal approval earlier this week. Baseball tonight is fueled by Gatorade. Gatorade's proven formula, whatever path you take, greatness starts with G. We got sad news the other day about Roland Heeman, three-time Major League Baseball Executive of the Year with the Chicago White Sox and Baltimore Orioles. He passed away at 92. Roland was one of the great guys in sports. I got to know him in 1995, my first year covering the Orioles when I was at the Baltimore Sun. And every Ken Rosenthal would tell me about how in the time that Roland was general manager of the Orioles, he would write these blistering columns about Roland, maybe some of the stuff the Orioles were doing. 
And he said, Roland, just roll with it. There was always that feeling with Roland that he just enjoyed baseball and he knew, you know, the conversation around it, whether it was criticism or excitement, that was just something that was inherent in the sport. You know, he, I think, always looked at the game like a 10, 11, 12 year old, which was always really cool. Taylor, what do you got? Buster, a couple things to promote. Swagoo and Perk, ESPN's newest podcast. We've mentioned it on here before, but they are absolutely killing it right now. You can listen to that show wherever you're listening to this podcast right now, or you can watch them on YouTube, which is a great addition that we've been doing for a couple of our shows so far. Uh, This week, Swagoo and Perk, they address the latest setback for Zion Williamson, how Steph Curry is held to a different standard than LeBron James Dak Prescott's dip in performance and how they approach gift giving for the holidays. Also, a couple other shows still roll in the College Football Podcast. Uh, we'll be with you through the bowl season and through the playoffs. Uh, we've got a couple different voices on the show. Ryan McGee and Tom Luganbill. They were talking recruiting yesterday, which was great because the recruiting game is completely different now in college football with the early signing period, NIL, all that. So if you have any questions, you're seeing the headlines, uh, they have all the answers. Check out the College Football Podcast wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. Dogs are an important part of our lives and keeping them protected is a top priority especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NexGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Buster. Just go to Indeed.com slash Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the show! Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, mate. Welcome to the show. Whoa! Welcome to the show, baby. You're in the show with David Schoenfield. David Schoenfeld covers baseball for ESPN. And Dave, as I was getting ready for uh, our conversation this morning, I noticed that you basically stopped using Twitter mid-season. Give me your thinking on that. 
Oh, Buster. Yeah, most uh, la- over the last year or so. It's a long story, but let's just I, say. I, no, I want to hear it. It's not like we there's like a bunch of baseball talk. Oh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I got a good I'm topic for you today. But... Let's leave it at that. <laughs> you what? I'm anti-Twitter. For those who enjoy their social media, that's all good. Uh, I think Twitter has done more harm than uh, positive. So uh, I try to... Uh, Stay away from it. other than I, I, you know, trade deadline, free agency. I see what all the guys like you are out there uh, reporting, but uh, yeah. I, I think I, off it. I stupidly, it took me way too long to reach the conclusion that you do, can't win over hearts and minds uh, using social media. And I'm like, nah, you know what? <laughs> I reached that conclusion the last six months. I'm kind of, yeah, like, I'd rather read a good book in my, my free time than spend hours on Twitter. So that's my recommendation. Listeners go read a good book. That they, or go read Dave's latest piece on ESPN.com about <laughs> how the best teams will fill their holes. And something jumped out of me in the, in the piece that you wrote uh, that's on ESPN.com now is why we saw so many elite free agents sign before that December 1st deadline. Number one is still there. Number three is still there. Number four, number eight from Kylie McDaniel's list. There are a lot of good players still unsigned. Yeah, no doubt. You know, with Carlos Correa and Freddie Freeman in particular, we really don't have an idea where those guys are going to land. We all keep assuming Freeman's going to end up back in Atlanta. But, Buster, we both know History tells us even when a superstar face of the franchise player has gone this deep into free agency, they don't usually go back to their previous team. You know, you would have more insight. I still expect Freeman to go back to Atlanta, but the Yankees need a first baseman. There's a lot of Dodgers rumors, especially we don't know exactly what's up with Max Muncie. If there's a DH, you know, there's room for another bat in that lineup. So, Freddie Freeman and Carlos Correa, I'm really curious where they end up playing in 2022. I think it was Scott Boris who made this point to me years ago uh, about Bernie Williams when he became a free agent. Uh, If you remember, Bernie actually went into the marketplace, talked to the Red Sox, got an offer, $91 million, got an offer of about $100 million from the Diamondbacks, and wound up sitting down with George Steinbrenner and said, remember all those times when you basically were indicating you didn't think I was a very good player? Well, you know what? I am. And Scott pointed out to me that you do not, with with the competitive athlete, right, you don't want to turn this into a competition. I think that's what the Braves' ownership has done. And by the way, I say ownership because I don't think Alex Anthopoulos, their general manager, would have dragged it out this long. Right. And you got to remember, under Liberty Liberty Media, their owners, the Braves have never signed a big long-term player to a free agent deal. They signed Freeman early on to that extension when he was young. Obviously, they had those very team-friendly extensions for Ronald Acuna and Ozzy Albies. But in free agency, they have not gone this route. You know, they do not like to run that payroll up into the $200 million range like your other big spenders. So it is not a lock that Freeman ends up with the Braves. Yep. Uh, I agree with you, and I'm, but I do have the same questions you do about who actually come out of the list or who come out of the weeds to make a right. run, whether it is the Dodgers or whether it is the Yankees. All right, um, let's run through some, uh, just run through some of the news, and there's not a lot of news, of course, with the, with the lockdown going on now. The Mets managerial search. Uh, Matt Cotaro, 
uh, interviewed two days ago today, as you and I talk on Thursday, Joe Espada, the bench coach for the Astros, he's going to interview later today. Buck Showalter gets interviewed on Friday. Um, you know, I asked the source yesterday, it's like, is this a done deal? Is this a matter of just uh, coronation for uh, Buck Showalter? And the answer I got back was no. Uh, if somebody comes in, one of the other two candidates comes in and blows them away, they're going to be open-minded. The thing is, Dave, I just think there's so much risk for Billy Epler if he doesn't hire Buck Showalter. In other words, let's say they they pass on Buck and the next year the Mets are disappointing and, you know, the idiots like me are writing in the papers about, uh, you know, the dysfunction and stuff goes on. I, I just think there's too much risk to hire somebody besides Buck given popular sentiment. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. And let's not dismiss the fact that experience can be important. And the last two Mets managers were hired without any managerial experience. You know, was that a reason they ultimately did not succeed at their jobs? You know, who knows? But we all know Buck Showalter has been a very successful major league manager. Yeah, he's 65. It's been three years since he managed. 2018 was his last year. But you know, if if you hire him, you know you're bringing an adult into the room. And that's not knocking the other two candidates who are very highly regarded, but you know what you're getting with Buck Showalter, and there is something to be said for that. Yeah, uh, no question. The other thing, too, is that it's a, a win-now team based on the, yep. the fact you're paying a Max Scherzer, you know, 37-year-old Max Scherzer, $43 million a year, okay? So it's a win-now team. You, you paid – Absolute uh, retail plus 10% on Max Scherzer and Eduardo Escobar, who's not only a good player, but he's known as a great clubhouse guy. Mark Canna, Starling Marte. You, you, if you're going all in and it's a win now team, then I, I think Buck is the, the clear choice. But we'll uh, we'll see if one of those other two guys blows them away and and uh, they they veer in a different direction. We got word the other day that the Justin Verlander contract uh, that was agreed to before the December 1st deadline has been officially passed uh, forward, uh, given the approval by Major League Baseball. Some fans are like, wait, what? There's no no business going on in baseball. Uh, And in fact, some of the uh, anti-Astro conspiracy theorists are saying, see, the Astros must have something on the commissioner's (laughs) office because they can still do business when other teams don't. No, it's a procedural issue. From, From everything I've heard, uh, you know, there was the Astros and Verlander finished the deal. Um, it was signed. It was all proper in the hours before the deadline. But there was a lot going on in baseball. You yeah. might remember that night. And it just didn't get formal approval. And now it has it. Yeah. And to me, you know, obviously good news for the Houston Astros. Good news for Verlander. He knows where he's playing. Look, obviously there's, you know, we don't know exactly what he's going to be when he comes back, but this guy is going to outwork anybody. He was, you know, arguably the best pitcher in baseball before he got hurt. I think Verlander makes the Astros the clear favorite, not only to me, Buster, in the AL West, but I think they're going to be the best team in the American League. And that's without Carlos Correa, and we don't know who's going to be their shortstop, but that team, I think they have the, the best and deepest rotation. They're still going to score a ton of runs. Kyle Tucker is a sleeper MVP candidate. The fact that they've secured Verlander for sure, that's just a huge, huge move for Houston. And I think that they will wind up with one of the two premier shortstops in the marketplace, uh, either uh, Carlos Correa resigning there uh, or perhaps uh, Trevor Story. 
Um, and by the way, you know, the piece that just posted on that I that I, I wrote uh, last week and it just got posted today, Correa turned down $275 million over 10 years from the Tigers. I think he's looking for a Lindor type deal. I don't think he'll get that. Uh, Jim Crane, the owner of the Astros, has told people in that organization he won't go beyond six years, but a way to thread the needle would be to give him a huge salary over the course of a six-year deal, say six years at $35 million. And I'm just making that up. I don't know if that's actually the conversation. Um, and if they don't sign him, I think they'll sign Story. I think they'll get one of the two guys. Yeah, I, uh, I think that's a good point because – to me, and I think you'll agree, I think Carlos Correa is a better player than Corey Seager. It's close, but I would take Correa long-term. So we know what Seager got, right? $325 million. So that feels like a starting point for a 10-year deal. But who out there is going to give him that money? You know, the Mets have a sh- shortstop. The Rangers have a shortstop. The Dodgers, at least for one year, have a shortstop, you know, and they have long-term money committed to, to Mookie Betts. Obviously, the Yankees are the big team sitting out there, but, you know, they got this kid, Anthony Volpe, who's their their best prospect. They think he's going to be ready probably 2023, so maybe they don't want to make that commitment. So who's out there to give Carlos Correa $350 million? So that gets back to your premise that maybe he does end up back in Houston. And on top of that, whether it's the Astros or whether it's the Dodgers or the Yankees, you know, one way you could structure that deal, and this is pointed out to me by agents, and I think this should be really attractive for Carlos if, in fact, he doesn't and no team offers him a deal like Lindor's, uh, and I don't think any team will, uh, if you give him an opt-out after two years, right? Yeah. You tell him if you're the Astros, okay, you're you know 27 years old, uh, we'll pay you $35 million a year for a couple of years, and in two years, if you choose to opt out, you're in a better position then uh, you'll you'll have that option. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Uh, I don't know about you, but every day I get asked uh, you know, doing radio shows or, you know, I bump into fans and they'll ask me about, okay, what are the talks going on? I'm like, there are no talks. They're, they're not going <laughs> to talk for a while. We, there needs to be a hard deadline in place for these two sides to actually move forward. Yes? Yeah, no doubt. And that, you know, it's, what everybody thinks until we get closer to the start of spring training, there's no pressure, unfortunately, to make a deal. Like if they wanted to make a deal, they would have done it in the summer or the fall, but they're not close to making a deal. So it's going to go down to the last second. You know, I, I did a piece looking at the history of uh, all the different deals going back to 19 early seventies. when we had our first strike in 1972 And these things always, always, always go to the last minute. And, you know, it's probably the case once again. All right. Uh, We're going to be talking in just a minute with Kevin Malone, the former general manager of the Montreal Expos from 94-95. He's, uh, I'm sure, got stories that are going to be instructive as we go ahead to, uh, you know, what's going to happen after there's an actual settlement. When you think of the 94 Expos, what comes to mind? Well, you can make a case, certainly for sure, the greatest team who never got a chance to win the World Series. Remember, the Braves won the NL East, what, every year from 1991 to whatever it was, 2005, except 1994, the Expos had a better record than the Braves that year. It probably would have been the World Series favorite heading into the the postseason that year. And obviously they came out of that strike traded Larry Walker, John Wetland, you know, a couple years later, they had to trade Pedro Martinez and that was it. 
baseball in Montreal was dead, you know, basically a direct result from that strike, that franchise never recovered. So it's one of the sad stories to me in baseball history. And I know I've known Kevin long enough to know he's got strong feelings about trading Marquise Grissom to the Atlanta Braves <laughs> on the eve of the 95 season for the exact reasons you just laid out. I'm curious to see what he tells us about his talks with John Scherholz, the uh, general manager of the Braves. All right, Dave, thanks for doing this. All right, Buster. Thanks. Kevin Malone is the former general manager of the Montreal Expos and the Los Angeles Dodgers. And he's currently the CEO and the chairman of the board for the United States Institute against human trafficking. Kevin, long time no talk. How you doing? Good to see you, Buster. I'm doing well. Thank you. Yeah, I got to know you really well when you were the assistant general manager under Pat Gillick with the Baltimore Orioles and uh, always enjoyed talking with you then. And, and I know, you know, you are someone who gets fully invested in your work, which is why when I saw what you're doing against human trafficking, uh, this was something that's going to be for sure important to you. I want to ask you uh, about what happened with the Montreal Expos in the spring of 1995, because I think that's going to be instructive for what baseball is going to experience uh, whenever this labor stoppage ends. But before that, I want to ask you about your work uh, against human trafficking. Tell me, tell me what you do. Well, in 2009, Buster, I went to Thailand and I uh, was introduced to uh, four, five and six year old boys and girls that had been sold as sex slaves. It broke my heart. I came back to America and started uh, researching and finding out that America had a huge problem with American boys and girls being sold for sex. And uh, it was kind of a hidden secret at that time. Uh, so in 2013, I, I took this on full time. So it's been seven, almost eight years. What I do is I try to change laws at the uh, federal level uh, to protect kids, to rescue kids, to bring restoration. Uh, I work with a group that does rescues. Uh, we have the only uh, boys trafficking safe home in America uh, for little boys because we know that 30% or more of all trafficked American kids are boys. No one knows that or talks about that. So we have a boys home to bring uh, wraparound services and care to boys that have been sold as sex slaves. Uh, and then I try to work with just politicians, government people, nonprofits, just to make America aware. It's an international problem, yes, but we've got a huge problem in America, Buster, where uh, men uh, are buying uh, sex from kids, and I'm trying to stop it. So, you know, the, the numbers say that American men are the number one consumers of sex, buying sex from children in the world. So we've got a huge problem in America. And I'm just trying to wake people up to protect your kids and try to get men to stop this heinous activity. So that's what I do. And it keeps me busy. You mentioned numbers. What are some of the numbers you're looking at in, in uh, doing your work? Well, you know, we believe that there's a hundred to 200,000 American boys and girls being sold every day for sex. Most of it's online. A lot of it's through social media. But we have a huge problem in America because uh, there's there's so much money to be made. You can sell a drug once you can sell a gun once, but you can sell a child over and over. So the revenue stream is huge. It's a supply and demand issue. Their demand is out there because men want to have sex with kids. And I don't understand that. It's evil. It's perverse. But uh, but we don't have enough protectors. We have so many predators, so many evil, sick men that are that are involved in this activity. So I'm working in different states. I've got offices in different states. I'm trying to raise up 
an army of people to fight against this, to fight to protect our kids. And that means changing laws. That means uh, informing uh, teachers, first responders, law enforcement. My website, we do trainings. We have a portal where we can educate law enforcement, teachers, uh, the medical profession, churches, uh, synagogues, anybody that wants to get involved in the fight, we will equip them. We will train them. We will help them fight to protect our kids. What's your website name? If you can give that for it, the listeners. It's, it's, it's the USIAHT.org. It stands for the United States Institute Against Human Trafficking. So USIAHT.org. And it's, a, it's an intentionally well-built, well-informative uh, website that will, will provide you all the facts, all the data, all the research and information if you want to get involved in this fight. I'm going after demand. I'm trying to stop men from paying to rape our, our nation's children. And we've got a huge problem. So, so people say, well, how many is that? We're talking about tens, if not hundreds of thousands of kids, maybe sometimes the same kids are being bought and sold every day. So how many men is that? That's tens of hundreds of thousands every day are buying children uh, to rape them. I, I, I get aggravated. I get frustrated. You know, I got a little bit of passion in whatever I do. And and uh, God's called me to fight this fight, and I'm going to fight it and, and do the best I can. And I probably won't make a lot of friends along the way, Buster, but I'm not in the friend-making business anymore. <laughs> the first time, Kevin, first time, Kevin, that I ever spoke with you was in, uh, never forget it, February 1995. And you were the general manager of the Montreal Expos at that time. Uh, there was a, a player strike. Work stoppage was going on. Um, and at that time, and I didn't know the full scope of it the first time I talked with you, but you were preparing for this sell-off of one of the greatest teams that base in baseball history, that history will never remember. Yes. Uh, the 1994 Expos who, you know, I was looking at some numbers again today, final 76 games, Kevin, you probably have these numbers burned in your head, 53 and 23. That's 113 win pace when, uh, you know, the labor stoppage uh, ended the 1994 season. He had a 74 and 40 record on that team. Hall of Famer Pedro Martinez, Hall of Famer Larry Walker, Marquise Grissom, Moises Alou, Cliff Floyd, Ken Hill, John Wetland, you know, so many other great players who Darren Fletcher, Mike Lansing, Will Cordero. That team was loaded. And as we say, because of the the labor stoppage, it's it, you never had a chance to play it out all the way. Yeah, when I think about that team, I have a lot of fond memories. It was a great experience. Dan Duquette passed that team over to me, and I made some small tweaks to it to try to make it better. But And even Dave Dombrowski before him. Uh, so I, I attribute uh, Dave Dombrowski and Dan Duquette putting, mainly putting that team together, and I was able to take over and try not to mess it up, added a few little pieces to it. But that was a special team that was on its way to, I think, winning the world championship in 1994. And then we had the strike. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's fond memories, but it's very painful to think about what could have been, what should have been, but based on greed, based on bad decision-making by owners and by the union, uh, that team uh, never got to, to finish what it started. And I think it was the, the beginning of the end for baseball in Montreal. Yeah. Montreal never recovered and it could have been a special you know, and I don't, you know what, Buster, I, I think oftentimes about, I really think if it would have been a different team in a different city, in a different country, 
they might have found a way to get this done, but it was Montreal. And I don't really think people cared that much about the Expos. And it was like, if we got to pay, somebody's got to pay the price and make the sacrifice. It might as well be this small team up in Montreal, this small Canadian team. No one really knows that much about. But if it had been someone, you know, a team in New York or L.A. or or somewhere else, you probably saw this thing get resolved sooner than it did. All right. Because in part uh, that team didn't have a chance to, you know, play out the rest of the season and to have postseason success. Sometime during the work stoppage, you get word that mm-hmm. you're going to have to basically sell off this team. Uh, yes. You get those orders at some point. What do you remember about that conversation? When did that take place? Well, I'm the eternal optimist buster. I always felt like somehow before the season uh, was canceled that we would be able to finish. And then when that didn't happen, then I was optimistic that we would be able to to keep that team, which I couldn't. I had to I had to trade Larry Walker. I had to trade Marquise Grissom. I had to let Larry Walker go to free agency because ownership in Montreal said we couldn't afford to keep this team together. So then I'm, I'm you know, spring training was in in West Palm Beach, Florida. We were sharing a, a complex with the Braves. Uh, and you just don't know. But I think my advice to baseball now is to GMs and teams, do what you can under the guidelines and the rules that you can to put your plan in place of the team uh, that you want to have, the players that you want. You can't wait to the last minute because that's what's going to happen. We entered into spring training and they told us to go put together teams of replacement players. You know, these were, were guys that, maybe played major league baseball didn't some of them were in their thirties and forties and they were old and fat and definitely ugly. So how do do you put together a team like this? So that was what, you know, there was no kind of direction. And I think what I'm hoping baseball learn, at least GMs and teams prepare for it now, prepare that the strike could end tomorrow and start putting your teams together because you're going to have a short window of, signing free agents, making trades, and making sure your team's ready to go into spring training. And it looks like now, and hopefully not, it's going to be a short spring training, and it could go into the regular season. So you have to be prepared and do everything possible and be ready to pull the trigger uh, when the time comes. Because once they told us that, you know, we put replacement players, then they said, hey, no, uh, we've got a deal in place. Now, you're scrambling to make sure guys are, are are coming into camp, they're in shape, that you got the team you need, that everybody's healthy. It, it's chaotic. It's really not good for baseball or for the fans because we know throughout the winter that fans love following trades and, and signings and they get into it over the winter, but they're not going to have that that opportunity. So hopefully baseball will get this done quickly. I don't think they will, but I hope so. There's a lot of money to go around. Everybody can make enough money that everybody should be happy. We shouldn't be greedy. We should do what's best for the fans. We always talk about that, but the fans are always left holding the bag. But I'm hoping that smarter heads prevail and that and that the commissioner, the owner, and, and, and Tony Clark and the union can figure out and get this done sooner than later. Yeah, my hope is the same as yours. Um, but I suspect that the, the relationship is, is dysfunctional, more dysfunctional than I've ever seen it between the two sides. Yeah. So I fully anticipate that there is going to be a situation you mentioned that it, uh, let's say in mid-March, they say, you got three weeks. And Kevin, you've seen the list of free agents grow. Mm-hmm. It's almost 200 players are going to be looking for jobs. 
You also have the Oakland Athletics who are expected to make a lot of trades once the gun goes off and teams can talk. Um, And to your point, I've talked with teams that have said, we're trying to get all of our player evaluations in order of these free agents because it is going to be a free for all Mm -hmm. of general managers on the phone 24 hours a day, agents calling, trying to get their guys job. Um, When you think back to your experience in the spring of 95, how crazy was that? where you had to move star players before the start of the regular season while all these free agents are looking for jobs, some at minimum salary. What do you remember about that time? Well, I think I was a little bit more fortunate. Is I kind of knew the handwriting on the wall because I knew ownership, no matter what the outcome was with the player strike or the lockout, that I was going to have to move my best players. So I had already started and I could work on it. Uh, and I don't know how stringent the rules were, at that time, but I could talk to teams to some degree. Uh, you know, you could you could you could figure out who was interested. You could maybe work out the details, but you could get a lot done in preparation for the end of the strike, the end of the lockout. So I knew I was going to have to move three or four All Stars, future Hall of Famers. So I could actually do some ground early groundwork to get ready for that. But but as you said, Buster, it's it's going to be crazy. I don't know how stringent they are on GMs not talking to agents and not talking to players and not doing their work. I mean, that's why guys are in those positions. They're workers. They're 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 strategic planners. They're team builders. How do you tell somebody that that's in their DNA? That's who they are. Not to do anything. So I believe things are being done covertly. I don't know that for sure. Uh, you might, but come on, we. Let's be real. We know we're talking about teams and money and reputations and a lot on the line here. People are working. They're just going about it a little bit more covertly and smartly. And I think I think the better ones will be ready when this ends and they'll be able to pull the trigger. Things will somewhat be in place. So certain people are going to are going to be impacted negatively because they weren't really ready. But I think for the most part, everybody's going to be ready and they're going to be able to do what they need to do in a short window of time. I'm glad you stated the obvious. Uh, you, know, <laughs> as you know, Major League Baseball has the rules is the lockdown and you're not allowed to talk to anybody. And I've actually had people say, uh, text me back and said, look, I can't talk. But then one day uh, I got a phone call from a number I didn't recognize. And it was, uh, uh, you know, front office person. I won't be more specific than that. Who's it was calling me from his wife's cell phone. <laughs> Because he was like, you know what? I know we can't talk, but I just want to. And you know, and I know that those type of things are happening, whether it's on a a wife's cell phone or a mom's cell phone or an uncle's cell phone to agents. And a lot of those conversations are going to take place during this time. Yeah. Well, and I heard throughout Major League Baseball, there was a major uptick in in burner phones being bought. So I don't really know if that's true, Buster, but uh, I think there might be uh, some truth to that. But, you know, I just I would just wish that egos and power and the stuff that goes into people making bad decisions on both sides would they somehow find a way to, to figure out and do what's best for the for the fans. I mean, and everybody benefits when you can find some some ground, you know, mutual ground to operate. There's plenty of money. I mean, seriously, come on. There's plenty of money available for for both ownership and for players. So I don't know. I get frustrated. I mean, I was frustrated in 95, 96. And 
you know, so, uh, but we'll see what happens. So tell me when, as you're making those trades of those star players, what was a, a really hard moment for you when you agree to a deal and, and you knew in your heart, you know what, this is not equal value for this player. I'm never going to get this, this type of talent back yeah. in return. If you can tell me some of those personal stories of those individual guys. John Wetland, that was the biggest one. I mean, I both broke down and cried when I had to trade him. One, at that time. You traded him to the Yankees. He was your closer for people yeah, who don't know. MVP of the World Series the next year. And I got Fernando Seganal, who was a big prospect and, and looked good on paper, but really didn't get what I should have got because people knew I had to trade him because the ownership told me to trade him and, and he'd get the best I could, which wasn't good enough, obviously. So, but I, I remember telling John and calling him and, and saying, John, I'm, you know, and, and the players kind of knew that I had, I was, my hand was being forced to trade him, but it just hurt. I cried with him uh, because he loved Montreal. All these guys love Montreal. They loved the team. They knew the potential that we had of not maybe only winning at 94, but winning it, being in position to win it multiple years, to win multiple championships. So just calling John saying, hey, I've got to trade. Oh, is there anything we can do? Let me talk to Claude Brochu, you know, the, the general partner, the owner at the time. Uh, what can I do? All these players were willing to even take less or to, to try to figure out because, you know, contrary to what a lot of people think, yes, most players do want as much money as they can get, but, but sometimes – what's more important is being on a championship team and being around guys that you like to enjoy playing with. And, and, you know, you can win championships. So all those guys were willing to take less or to figure out some sort of way to make it work. But it just hurt because I'd gotten close to John and, and, you know, Marquise Grissom, I, I was his first coach in major league baseball when he was like, wow. Oh, for 46 at Jamestown, New York. Uh, and he was thinking about quitting and thinking, you know, he, he he said, Malone, I made a mistake. You know, he was struggling. We could show up every day early, hit off the tee, soft toss. I mean, he'd do all the extra work. And when he broke out of his slump, ended up hitting like 360, 380 that year in Jamestown in New York Penn League and gone on, you know, went on to become an all-star. And we reflect back on that. And then when I had to trade him to the Braves, the team that we trade a facility with, I couldn't stand the Braves. They were, you know, that was our number one competition. You know, and they were smug about it. And they always were, oh, we're the Braves and you're the second class citizens from Canada. But when I had to trade him and he helped them win a championship in, in Atlanta. So, you know, I always tried to do what's best for not only the organization, the team ownership, but also for the players to make sure I put them in situations where they could go and have success. Yeah. You know, you always want to get the most you can for your players when you're making a trade. But I felt like I had a responsibility to the players and their families to put them into good situations where they would, you know, enjoy it. So sending Marquise back to Atlanta, where he was from, putting him on the Braves and then watching him beat me, you know, beat my teams in the future along. I mean, uh, that was uncomfortable, but. You know, I could the old the way I you're I, being nice, Kevin. I thought about as you were describing that and how passionate you are. That must have made you sick to see the Braves win the World Series in '95. It and you know I love John Sherholtz, but you know I wanted to smack that little smile right off of his smirky little face. Uh, you know, but I respected him. He was a great general manager, but you know he knew those guys knew they had me by the by the short hair, so to speak, and they 
So I didn't get enough for Grissom. I mean, I got some good, decent guys back, but nobody's going to give you, you know, full value for those because I had to move them. But I was happy to see Wetland win a world championship in Montreal. I mean, in, in New York, be the MVP. Grissom win a world championship in Atlanta. Let Larry Walker go to Colorado where, you know, I mean, he Gave was a Hall of Famer. There you go. So it worked out in the long run, but it didn't work out at that time for Montreal, for the Expo organization. And, you know, for me personally and for that team that we could have not only won one, but we thought multiple world championships. So it, it hurt. And that was disappointing. Still frustrated. I tell Bud Selig every time I see him, you know, how upset I am with him. But, you know, we, we it's water under the bridge now. And, you know, he was doing what he had to do as a commissioner, as an owner, but I still never agreed with the way they went about it and the way it happened. So, you know, I'll go to my grave knowing that it could have been different. Kevin, I got to have you on again uh, to at some point you and I trade Peter Angelo stories because we had a lot there with the Orioles and, uh, you know, everything that that team. And uh, boy, we, we have a lot of stories to tell. Um, but anyway, it's always great catching up with you. Uh, Thank good you. luck yeah. with your work. I know it's important to you because everything you do is important to you. Well, well, pray for me. And, and, and if anybody out there is interested in, in getting in the fight or learning more about this, uh, I'm doing a lot of work all over the country in a lot of different cities, towns, and, and counties and states. So the United States Institute Against Human Trafficking will equip you, will train you, will will empower you to protect kids and to make a difference in this fight against evil. So I thank you for being on your show, Buster. I, I appreciate it. You've gone to great uh, heights now. You're you're a big star in the baseball world. So I'm humbled to be on your show. Oh boy. <laughs> okay, Kevin. It's great to talk with you. Thank you, Buster. God bless and Merry Christmas. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with Code Baseball. That's Code Baseball. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Jumping into the numbers. numbers. This is Hembo Knows on Baseball Tonight. Hembo, of course, Paul Mbikiti is a researcher at ESPN. Uh, he is the uh, a, a head honcho on the show, Get Up. And you hear him a lot on Mike Greenberg's show. And I'm a little bit off this morning because I, as I signed on, I heard, uh, Hembo, you and Taylor talking about getting together. And immediately, mm-hmm. like, oh, my God, the damage that would be done between drinks and food between the two of you and your wives would be unbelievable. 
I mean, the, the already way too busy public health officials here are going to be thrown into hyperdrive if he and I do this, considering the amount of partying that you know we like to do. And also, Taylor and I are both um, meat-smoking aficionados. So between the, the excess drinking, which you know will obviously occur, and just the absurd amount of sodium that we'll consume on this, on all of our meats that we decide to smoke over the weekend, it, it's about as unhealthy a lifestyle as, you, as we could live. And I, he and I are going to relish in it, but definitely pay for it the next day. Okay. We, we had fun with Taylor earlier this year. He had uh, a wedding that he went to. He set the over under, if I remember correctly, 42 and a half drinks over the course of three days. Uh, <laughs> if the two of you and your wives got together, I need you to collaborate here. Give me an over under on drinks be to, over a three day period between the two of you. Taylor, would you take the over or under at 99.5? Ooh. I think I'd have to lean the over and yeah. mostly because, <laughs> and honestly, my wife will, it kind of, she's, she's a little bit of a lightweight, so she could have three drinks and like pack in for the night. So I think we'd really be leaning on Mrs. Hembo to, uh, to get us to that over, but I believe in her. So, uh, so yeah, let's go over. My wife is, is no such thing. She will be up to the task. The three of us at minimum will be able to hammer at home. <laughs> pound the over buster pound the over <laughs> no i figured as much uh all right we just got done talking with kevin malone general manager of the expos 1994-95 and he talked about the craziness in the spring of 95 after the strike was settled but one of the conversations we had uh, or one of the questions i had for him uh, was about uh, the 94 expos and their place in history i mentioned to him uh that i think that uh, they're the best team that history has forgotten what say you Totally agree. I mean, there are obviously dozens, if not hundreds of sort of uh, what ifs in the history of baseball. At the top of that list would be would Tony Gwynn have hit 400 in 1994. But of course, another what if would be would the Expos have won the World Series? And if so, what in the world would that have meant for their future? Obviously, like so much of baseball's history was changed based upon that strike. And the Expos paid the price probably more so than any other team. I always really like Buster looking back at that team. And I have a couple notes for you that I do think illustrate that this was a truly dominant group that is misremembered or or, or under-remembered historically. So from June 1st on, the Expos went 46 and 18. That was the best post-May record for any team since the 1954 Indians. I mean, they started fine, but they hit their stride at, at the end of the spring and became an absolute juggernaut for the season as a whole. Montreal averaged more than five runs a game and allowed fewer than four runs. Buster, it had been 10 years since a team did that. It was actually the Tigers in 1984, and they, of course, won the World Series. They were a truly dominant team. But, of course, I think the, the last number that has to be mentioned here is that in 94, they did all of that. Second lowest payroll in baseball. Montreal spent only $19 million that season in salary. And in 95, the year after, of course, that figure dipped to $12 million. That was the story for Montreal. And that, those $12 million almost made up essentially what Marquise Grissom and Larry Walker made in that season by themselves combined on their new contracts with new teams. So it's definitely a sad story of sorts in baseball history and definitely one of our, one of our great what ifs. Yeah. When we got done the interview Hembo uh, yesterday, uh, Kevin showed us a framed design of what their world championship ring would have looked like. Uh, from the 94 team. It was really neat. He, he mentioned uh, to us that the owner wouldn't go for that. 
Um, but he, I mean, it's just one of those moments. I'm sure if you're a baseball executive, your heart's just broken because you can't replicate that. And you're right about Tony Gwynn. I've told you, you know, because I've covered the Padres in 94 and saw Tony, how hot he was at the end, 12 for 25 on that last road trip. He would have hit 400, have no doubt about it. You know, his knee was in good shape after having issues the year, years before. Um, there's arguably going to be more conversation about this year's Hall of Fame class than any other in history. Uh, and for multiple reasons, one, of course, it's the last time in the ballot for Bonds and for Clemens, but also because there's no other baseball going on. So, so we're going to be talking a lot about it. Uh, but you sent an idea a few days ago about a conversation for today about active players who might be borderline Hall of Fame candidates. You want to present uh, them as uh, potential Hall of Famers and I'll vote yes or no based on what you tell me. Awesome, Buster. So I, we're going to call this the Hall of Fame game. And for our, just so our listeners know, Buster, you have opted not to know what I was going to bring to the table in advance so that you can get an in-the-moment reaction. I've identified five players, five active players, that I would describe as borderline candidates, or at least candidates that aren't shoe-in laps for the Hall of Fame, like Albert Pujols or Miguel Cabrera or players like that. The first player on my list, Buster, and I suspect I know where you're going to go, is Yadier Molina. Do you want me to give you my, my data and my opinion, or do you want to start by sharing yours? No, go ahead. Give your data and your opinion. So over the course of the last few years, I have fundamentally flipped my opinion on Yadier Molina. A few years ago, when I was a little bit more of a statistical egghead, I would have said definitely not. This guy has not produced nearly enough value in order to you know reach the Hall of Fame, regardless of what everyone tells me about him. But you and others over the course of time have convinced me that the heat that Yadier Molina's value can't only be demonstrated in his numbers. And when you, and you and I have done the research here, not only have the Cardinals been far and away the best team in baseball in terms of um, uh, controlling the running game, but also Yadier Molina's ability to handle that pitching staff is extremely evident because all you have to do is check to see how his pitchers perform when he catches and those pitchers perform when anyone else does. And those aren't things that anybody's war figure can really tabulate. So over the course of time, I've come around. And even though he is not an outstanding hitter by any stretch, and even though he never really had a peak that you could really dig your, uh, sink your teeth into, it is my opinion, and this has changed, that Yadier Molina is a Hall of Famer. Yeah, uh, slam dunk, no question. I'm glad you have evolved in your thinking in that. Uh, who's the greatest NFL corner of all time? I think Deion Sanders, maybe, arguably. Probably so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, to me, uh, when you think about Deion Sanders, it's not only about how great he was and the plays that he made, but what he allowed his team mm. to do because of his dominance. You know, the, they, they used to refer to Rebus Island, uh, where you could just put one side of the field for, uh, for Rebus. And uh, I think the same thing was true for Deion Sanders, and the same advantage has been there for the Cardinals. They didn't have mm. to worry about running games. And I, I've heard that from opposing managers, uh, base stealers. They'd be like, no, nah, we're going to St. Louis. We're not going to run. And he completely changed the game uh, because of his acumen, and that was multi-layered. So, yeah, he's a he's a slam dunker. All right, who's next? Next for me is Jose Altuve. So Jose Altuve obviously checks a lot of boxes and doesn't check another. He definitely had the prime. From 2014 to 2018, over the course of those five years, he was easily a top-five player in baseball. And if I extrapolate out uh, where his numbers are now, based upon where I think we can conservatively expect them to be, He's going to have 2,500 hits, and he's going to produce 60 wins above replacement. And I looked this morning. There are 65 eligible players for the Hall of Fame to meet each of those minimums. 57 of them are in the Hall of Fame, and the others that are not are practically all steroid guys. So he obviously uh, checks that box, 
too. What I just don't know and can't control for with any stat, Buster, is what the sign-stealing scandal is going to do to his legacy. It was my belief that if the Astros won the World Series this year, and and especially if he played well, he would be able to put a lot of that behind him. Since that didn't happen, it's very difficult for me to sort of project out how the the voters are going to feel about Jose Altuve in 10 or 15 years. I'm going to say yes, but I'm going to say yes um, without much conviction. I don't know. This is one of those moments where I wish I had emailed you ahead of time and, and uh, we go, could have gone back and forth in notes because there are two things that I wonder. Uh, how many people have won three batting titles who haven't gotten into the Hall of Fame? I got to believe that if, you know, three or more that you probably have those guys almost across the board have made it. And then someone who leads their league and hits four times. Um, I, I can't imagine there are too many players who've done that and not made the Hall of Fame. I think he's Hall of Famer. I agree with you. It's an unknown about what the Hall of Fame voters are going to do. Um, I, I guess there probably will be some voters who will continue to let Kennesaw Mountain Landis, noted segregationist, define <laughs> character for them. Maybe that's where we're going to go with this. <laughs> well, what I can tell you um, is that Jose Altuve is one of only two players in history that led his league in hits in four consecutive seasons Ichiro is the other, and we know he's going to be a slam dunk yep. Hall of Famer. So I think you're right. I think it's the I think the baseball case for him is actually obvious and clear. It just comes down to the 2017 scandal. Yep, I would vote for him again if I were still voting. All right, next on my list, Buster is Joey Votto. Now he's obviously most famous for the walk total. That 416 career on base is topped uh, post World War II only by Bonds, Mantle, Trout. Frank Thomas and Edgar Martinez, obviously all first ballots, no, no, not first ballot, all Hall of Fame slam dunks, and obviously aside from Bonds, who has the who has the steroid stuff. Now, obviously, there's a lot of, I guess, consternation, and there's been a lot of debate about whether or not his counting stats would be there. But he he, he crossed uh, 2,000 hits last year, as you know, and now sits at 330 home runs. And we can sort of measure his contributions as a hitter beyond that using more advanced statistics. And doing so, Buster, he's already passed. Reggie Jackson and Ken Griffey Jr. and George Brett. It, it is my opinion that he was actually a lot closer to the quality of player uh, as Miguel Cabrera was, even though Cabrera, I think, is a first ballot Hall of Fame lock. That's probably the closest uh, peer comparison. So I think Votto, obviously, I'm a sabermetric guy. I say yes for Votto, but I'm not certain that his reputation necessarily matches the, the, the value that he did actually produce. But I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a definite yes on Joey Votto. Yeah, me too. Uh, I think his candidacy will be come down to a classic old school versus new school thought. Mm. Um, you know, as you know, there's discussion in his time with the Reds. Does he drive in enough runs? There's criticism there right. about that. The bottom line is he's gotten on base something in the range of 3,500 times, 3,400 times in his career. Uh, his adjusted OPS plus for his career is 148. I didn't move fast enough uh, as you were talking, but I suspect there are not many guys who have a plus 148 for their careers who are not in the Hall of Fame. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so I, I I think he absolutely would be. Okay, give me one more. Okay, awesome. One more, and it's a pitcher. And the pitcher is Zach Granke. Okay, so here's my case for Zach Granke. I think one of the common arguments against him is that he was never great. He was never considered one of the greats of his time. But I think the numbers sort of fundamentally disagree with that, Buster. He had two yeah. seasons in his career in which he posted an adjusted ERA, an ERA plus of 200 or better. That matches Greg Maddox's total. That matches Bob Gibson and Lefty Grove's total combined. And when you consider that he won or has won 62% of his decisions and is likely to reach 3,000 strikeouts, that puts him on a list that only includes Pedro Martinez, Roger Clemens, and Randy Johnson. 
among retired players. It also loops them in with Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer, both of whom I think are sort of inarguably better than Zach Greinke. But Greinke, to me, suffers from sort of the Mike Mussina syndrome. Like, you can be a, a Hall of Fame pitcher and not be the best or second best pitcher of your generation. So this is another player who my opinion has changed on. I've gone from no to yes on Zach Greinke over the last couple of years. Where do you stand? Yep, I'm right with you. The last couple of years I've gone to a yes. I think he's uh, you know got enough counting numbers. And I also wonder, you know, that 2015 Cy Young vote in the National League, it mm-hmm. went the way of Jake Arrieta because Jake Arrieta had the greatest second half we've ever seen of any pitcher. And the Cubs were a great story that year. Uh, Zach Ranke could have easily been the Cy Young Award winner. And oh, that, I totally that, agree. Yeah, and and that's not to say I would vote for him, would have voted for him. I thought Arietta was the the right choice, but that was a coin flip year uh, among the candidates, and, and I think that would have changed the conversation around him. Real quick, I looked this up um, while you were talking about Joey Votto adjusted OPS plus. These are the players in his neighborhoods at, at one forty eight. Okay, Ralph Kiner, Hall of Famer, Mike Schmidt. Hall of Famer, Edgar Martinez, Willie McCovey, Willie Stargell, Jim Tomey, all Hall of Famers. Jeez. He's, he's higher than Miguel Cabrera at 145. Okay. Wow. Joey Votto at 148. So for me, and I have a soft spot in my heart. I got to know Joey early in his career. He's a terrific person. Um, absolutely. I think he's a Hall of Famer. Outstanding. Well, I, I the Hall of Fame game. Next time, I'll, maybe I'll pick some guys that are a little bit less obvious and clear. So we don't just put everyone in the freaking hall of fame. Well, and I would love too to have you say this guy's in the borderline, and I'm not voting for him. <laughs> I, I'll, I will be able, look, Buster. My guess is that Major League Baseball is not going to turn itself around here over the next week, so we might have some more time to noodle around. <laughs> That's exactly right. All right, Hembo, great to talk with you, and uh, get warmed up for your, your time with Taylor. Oh, I can't wait. Later, boys. Get out of here, Hembo. Sick exactly of Hembo. Right. Bleacher tweets. Alrighty, Buster. Bleacher tweets for a fine Thursday. First up is Brad Barber at Brad Barber. Brad Barber writes in: Is Burton's contract a comp for Judge, or what is for Judge? Yeah, I, I'm not sure who Burton is. I was Burton. kind of scratching my head a little bit. Maybe it was uh, one of those autocorrect things that uh, filled in. I'll just answer the question this way: I you know, look, Aaron Judge is going to be 30 years old next spring. I'm thinking he's going to wind up with like a six-year, $200 million deal, you know, say $33 million a year. Um, but I, I just, you know, one thing the Yankees also did with DJ LeMahieu last winter when they signed him is they extended his deal by a year to lower the average annual value of the deal. So maybe, you know, he winds up a seven-year deal for like 210 or something like that, $30 million a year, but he's going to get paid. Got it. Let's go to Amy Chapman at Amy R. Chapman. Amy writes in, Buster and Rev, what's the pettiest action during contract negotiations that you've seen in the ones you've covered? My vote, wiping the likenesses of players off the MLB website. I'm surprised they didn't replace them with pictures of the owners. But um, <laughs> And I just got to say, I, I'm, obviously, I'm not covering this, but uh, amid the whole Dan Snyder Washington football team drama and ugliness. I read a note that uh, Dan Snyder, he fired his GM, Bruce Allen and Bruce Allen after being fired, did not congratulate him on hiring Ron Rivera as head coach. So when they were like jostling as to how much money Dan Snyder was going to pay Bruce Allen uh, after he fired him, uh, Bruce or Dan Snyder really wanted Bruce Allen legally to have to thank or congratulate him on hiring Ron Rivera, which he did not have to do uh, in the end, but uh, extremely, extremely petty stuff there. Yeah. Uh, and, and the whole thing about taking down the player's likeness, I, I don't know what the 
the legal rationale or the strategic <laughs> rationale is behind that. Does that does seem silly? But there's no doubt the pettiest action in the spring of '95, and Kevin Malone made reference to this when the owners tried to implement replacement players. <laughs> I mean, it was a joke, and they the idea that they were going to uh, try to present this group of essentially, you know, class A, double A level uh, players as major leaguers. Uh, that, that was laughable right from the beginning and, and try to sell that to, you know, fans like come and see the Orioles play and the shortstop who's not named Cal Ripken, who's not really very good. You're going to come and pay full price for that. But then again, as I think about that, that's kind of what the Orioles have been doing anyway. Right. But, um, some jokes <laughs> in this tweet. Thank you for that, Amy. Last one for today, Eric Bobby at Bet the Family Farm writes in, Hey, Buster, I'm sick and tired of the perennial lockout talks and inaction by both sides. How can the fans have an impact? Can we make a fans union scene as we're the ones truly paying the bills for the billionaire versus millionaire squabble? Yeah, and and look, the fans are not going to have a voice at the table because Rob Manfred represents the owners, as we talked about. Tony Clark represents the players. There's not going to be someone among the fans in this uh, squabble in a private private business. But I think part of the reason why there was such labor peace for such a long time after 1995, you know, from 1995 to now, was because people saw the damage that was done to the sport after baseball resumed in 95, where franchises we talked about, like the Expos, were devastated. Like they went away because of that. Fans mm-hmm. went away for a while. Um, and I'm going to be really curious to see if this uh, work stoppage is extended into the year, whether or not fans will stay away in this situation as well. Kevin Malone, he said it. It was the beginning yep. of the end for, of the Expos. So there you go. Thanks for writing in, everyone. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter. And please follow, rate, and review this podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yep, and we'll do one more podcast next uh, week before Christmas. That's it for today. My thanks to Sarah, to Kevin, to Dave, Hembo, and Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. Thanks for listening to the Baseball Tonight podcast. If you're playing fantasy baseball, check out the Fantasy Focus podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. The Baseball Tonight podcast. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply.